All right, welcome everyone. This is Parkour History with Max Henry. Really excited to bring this episodic, episodic series to you guys. It's sort of the purpose behind it is to have a consolidated space where you can go really deep into the history of parkour, examine what's important, and also understand why it's important. So after giving you, you know, there's a lot of threads that tie into this story. So we're going to start as far back as we feel like is reasonable to go. And we're going to pull from many different sources and storylines across the whole series. But ultimately, we're going to hopefully tie them all together for you and give you some context at the end of every episode. We'll, we'll kind of relate what's this story that we cover in each episode mean in the modern day. And I'm real pumped to introduce Max. If you already don't know, he is an epic parkour historian and the only person maybe that can do this job effectively if creating um peace or that's a little bit of an exaggeration maybe <laughs> Not, it isn't though i appreciate it it though. isn't though it isn't really an exaggeration because here's the thing the information's been out there but again like you've had to piece it together always before hopefully this this series will solve that problem where you won't have to piece all these things together there's books there's various videos and interviews that if you you know do a lot of hunting you can find the stories but max has done all that for you and that's where we get to t start today. Yeah, like any good media host, I just want to spoon feed you my narrative so you don't <laughs> have to do your own research. Uh, that's my goal here. No, I really appreciate that. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, today's episode, the first part of our Georgia Bear segment, is a really good example of information that a lot of folks will probably be familiar with, but maybe not in quite as much detail, um, and particularly in the second segment on, on Georgia Bear's life. And it's something that I just really enjoy nerding out on. And I'm excited to continue learning and researching for this project. I appreciate you giving me the space to do that. It's an honor. So you said we were going back. And I think for our listeners, they might be surprised at how far <laughs> we're going to go back here. Uh, I wanted to start just by doing a quick broad stroke for anyone who maybe is listening and isn't super familiar with the history of parkour, maybe they're not sure who George Bear is and what his impact was on our sport. So kind of the traditional broad strokes narrative is you have a man named George Bear. He is a Frenchman, early 20th century, late 19th century. He created this movement system called Méthode Naturelle, the natural method, which is probably what I'll call it. So we don't have to listen to me speak poor French for as much of the episode as possible. And once he had created this system, he started to popularize it. Uh, the French military, firefighters, and some other civil service uh, brigades. I don't know. Other civil... Factions of the military. <laughs> exactly, yeah, like... yeah. Yeah, police, firefighters, um, the military, they all adopted this method to different extents and trained people in it. Um, after kind of the end of the French Indochina war and their war in Algeria, they, as in the French military, started to move away from the natural method. A lot of Hebert's work was lost, but through a man named Raymond Bell and uh, his son David and David's friends, Sebastian Foucault, Jan Hunatra, William Chow, uh, and the kind of core group that often is called the Yamakaze, the founders that spirit and some of the movement from the natural method was adopted and tweaked to fit their use of an urban space in the late 20th century 
So George Hebert, indirect role on parkour, but a pretty important role nonetheless. And it's where we get a lot of kind of foundational principles for the thought and philosophy behind the movement. 100%. Yeah, there's almost no further back you can go. There's maybe almost equally far back uh, cultural phenomena to point to, but it gets really vague if you try to tie anything historically further back than this, and at least in terms of chronology, chronological events. Yeah. Right? You follow the string back and you <laughs> yeah. kind of get to Georges Hebert. And yeah. from a, I think, a practical standpoint, that's where most people stop. Yeah. And what we wanted to go into in today's episode are some of Hebert's influences. So mm. if we keep kind of following that thread yeah. of movement, now we're no longer necessarily tracing uh, something that directly leads to parkour, but we're talking about where a bear got interested in movement. And for that, we're going to go way, way back to ancient Greece yeah. and talk about the development a little bit of gymnastics because as uh, maybe contentious as it is, <laughs> right? Gymnastics and parkour kind of are like uh, branches on an evolutionary tree, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. they they have a, a, com a common ancestor here. And so we're kind of tracing it back to the common ancestor, which is not representative of modern parkour or modern gymnastics, mm -hmm. um, but was an inspiration for a lot of the people that Hebert drew information from uh, and inspired both Hebert's method and the, the philosophy that he developed around his practice. Yeah. So in some ways, it's like the prehistory of parkour yeah. the cave and history of yeah parkour. It's, it's like uh, yeah it's the first mammal the story of evolution up to um you know homo sapiens includes of course an explanation of what it is to be a primate and a in a uh, mammal and a reptile and you yeah. know a vertebrate you know before that and so we're kind of going into all that stuff that's the foundation that eventually gets synthesized into something you can actually start to point to absolutely. in terms of parkour. So very exciting. Absolutely. And, and ancient gymnastics is really, really cool. Yeah. I think I didn't know a lot about it before doing some research for this program and it is kind of shrouded in a lot of mystery. So the first record that a lot of people point to that may have been something related to what we now refer to as gymnastics. There were um, paintings in the island of Crete, Minoan paintings of people jumping over bulls. And these are in the range of like 25 to 35,000 years old, which is absolutely insane <laughs> when you're talking about that. Um, but that's really one of the first things we can look at people doing, kind of exploring movement, not just as a form of like functional hunting and gathering, uh, or dance, you know, as like a way of connecting spiritually, but as kind of a celebration of it, its own uh, movement as its own entity, mm. right? So that's what ancient gymnastics potentially arose out of. Yeah, and that's that's really important is like we don't really know. Like we're still excavating <laughs> as much detail as we can, but the archaeology on, on the real story and the source of movement itself and the celebration of it, like you're saying, is it's not a crystal clear picture. No. And, and I mean, it's it like the be. Olympics are a perfect example of, you know, all of the, we have record of actual Olympics that happened, but there's a lot of legend that goes into how the Olympics started and all mm. these other stories. Uh, and we won't go into those legends necessarily, but what we do know about gymnastics in ancient Greece is really, really cool. I'm going to go back to like 500 BC to maybe a hundred BC. Um, that's where we start to kind of get, 
reputable reports. Um, a lot of these are from either Greek plays or dialogues. So Plato, obviously, very, very important philosopher, did one of the founders of Western thought, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, Plato had a background in gymnastics in the broad sense of kind of movement training. And when we talk about gymnastics in ancient Greece, it was this conglomerate of different practices. So, you know, your your gymnastics practice wasn't just acrobatics. It included like wrestling, it included boxing, running, track and field. Uh, and already for those who are familiar with George Bear, there are like little bells going off probably. Mm -hmm. like, that sounds quite familiar <laughs> with where we're going to go 2000 years in the future. But the other primary thing about ancient gymnastics, at least in ancient Greece, is it was not exclusively a movement practice. It was inherently tied into uh, kind of foundational thoughts on what it meant to have virtue, to be a virtuous person. And a lot of thinkers, Plato uh, and Socrates, from Plato's reports, essentially, of Socrates, we gather that those two in particular really thought of movement and this kind of cumulative approach to gymnastics as one of the three legs of being a righteous, virtuous person. And mm. so you had, you, it was great if you were a philosopher, but if your body wasn't active, you could only go so far. Mm. And there was this sense that the mind, the body, and the spirit were all intricately tangled up and intertwined. And the ancient Greek practice of gymnastics really embraced that idea. And the, um, the gymnastics practice areas and the palestrea, uh, boxing halls, all of these physical spaces in ancient Greece were often, at least in the records that we have, sites for dialogue among people like Pythagoras and Plato and Socrates. So you have the great thinkers sitting around at the gym after their workout, and that's when a lot of these uh, thinkers are having conversations about what is, you know, what, what would your Republic look like Plato <laughs> if you had one. And I just love that that is really the, the shared common ancestor. If there is one between parkour mm -hmm. and modern gymnastics is this question of what makes a virtuous person and the ancient Greeks decide, well, it's, you know, essentially strong mind, strong body, strong spirit. Mm -hmm. And, no coincidence that that is the translation <laughs> of the Yamakaze name, which we'll get into a little <laughs> bit later, but you've got pretty direct lineage right there. Well, yeah, you can see how the, the flow of something becoming narrowed into a discipline always starts from almost a super generalization of all the big questions. And so you have to pull it all into a sort of bottleneck to even name something. And so parkour is, of course, going to draw from the most ancient, you know, when you, when you pull the thread all the way back, it just goes into what does it mean to be alive and a yeah. human? And just like it, it gets real deep. How um, do I be strong? How yeah. do I be capable? And these were questions that the, the ancient Greeks were really interested in mm. and kind of the next step in our evolution of gymnastics, uh, which is what we'll continue calling it at this time, is uh, the ancient Romans who were not quite as abstractly oriented as the Greeks. The Romans were a lot more practical and, you know, they were concerned with the logistics of running 
the biggest empire that history had ever seen at that point. Hmm. So when they saw the Spartans and the Athenians and the other Greek city-states practicing gymnastics, and the Spartans actually used forms of gymnastics to train their soldiers. So they at least had recognized that this broader sense of gymnastics was a great means of physical training. And obviously around the same time, uh, you do have some form of the Olympic Games going where different city-states are competing and different events and the best athletes are coming together to strive together and compete and see who can bring home the glory to, to mm-hmm. their city-state. But the Spartans had started to militarize it a little bit and the Romans looked at them and said, well, that seems like what they're doing works pretty well. <laughs> We're going to take a little bit of that. And so they started to implement pieces of Greek gymnastics training into their regiment. And they developed, uh, for instance, a wooden saddle to have um, Roman soldiers practice mounting efficiently. And this is legitimately the origin of the pommel horse. I love that that is a thing. <laughs> that yeah. It is called the pommel horse because it was used to practice mounting a horse. <laughs> if, yeah, it's perfectly clear now. It makes so much sense because it's a very odd thing otherwise. Yeah, almost. it's like, why, why are people doing it? fancy horse mounting techniques? <laughs> oh, well, that's where it came from. So the Romans were more utilitarian they Mm. were not as interested in using these movement practices to exclusively explore what it meant to be strong or virtuous these other kind of abstract ideas that the greeks were interested in and because of that i think a lot of the value that got people motivated maybe for lack of a better word to engage with movement and gymnastics it started to pigeonhole itself into military training and within the Roman empire it kind of flourished in that little genre on its own, but you didn't see it expanding uh, in the sense that, you know, people didn't go to the Roman bathhouse after a workout and have the conversations in the same way that Mm. they would in ancient Greece, where you would have those conversations in the gymnasium or in the postrea. So already, like you were saying, it goes from these kind of broad strokes, general questions what does all of this mean yeah. to the Romans? Like, let's just make sure we can get off and on a horse and that we're physically fit enough to fight the barbarian invaders when they come for the homeland. And that's around 100 BC. Mm. Uh, big changes happened right around the turn from BC to AD. And you have the kind of growth of Christianity, the Catholic Church in particular, and the interest in bodies and movement just plummets as Europe <laughs> in particular enters uh, what we call the dark ages. Mm. So questioning what value the body has, that is no longer a priority in any context, not even military for (laughs) a lot of Europeans from 300 to maybe 1400 AD. The focus is entirely on developing spirituality. And at this time, the general, uh, philosophical i guess gist is that the the body just gets in the way of the development of the spirit that's Mm. when you have all of these aesthetics and monks that are you know developing techniques to distance themselves from their body so this was not a time that gymnastics or any type of movement practice was thriving Mm. by any stretch of the imagination (laughs) and what we do kind of keep from that earlier period is preserved kind of in like traveling shows. So Roma, 
um, circus performers, essentially acrobats. There is also a strong acrobatic, um, excuse me, acrobatic heritage that comes from China and from India. And these kind of mix in the Middle East and in Turkey, and they all sort of diffuse into what would really kind of become our circus culture. Mm. And so circus ends up preserving a lot of these ideas and becoming that fluid that is able to carry this <laughs> through the dark ages while you know most of europe is is focused on avoiding contact with the body and avoiding thinking about the body as much as possible mm. and we break out of that in uh probably about the 1500s mm. and so you've got the renaissance folks are disengaging a little bit with religion or at least changing the context in uh, how they relate to religion, the body, spirituality. And the first person and really the only person from that time period we're going to mention that directly contributes to Georges Hebert is a man named Francois Rabelais. Mm. And he was a, a polymath kind of thinker. He was a writer, has written some pretty well-known pieces um, for anybody who's familiar with works from that time period. He was a comedian, essentially, through his work, kind of a satirist, yep. <laughs> and he's also amazingly interested in the human body. And this fascination comes through in his work, in his fiction, but he also started to think about how the human body performed and wrote a little bit about it in a non-fictitious way. And he was the first one to kind of differentiate categories of movement. And he split those human movement categories into walking, running, jumping, climbing, lifting, throwing, QM or quadrupedal movement, balance, swimming, and self-defense. And for anybody, again, who has a little bit of working knowledge of the natural method in Georges Hebert, mm -hmm. those categories will sound very familiar. <laughs> this is uh, in the 1530s, I believe. So Rabelais was very ahead of his time. And he was one of the first that took the preserved heritage of gymnastics and movement and started to kind of reintegrate it into European society. And mm. again, we're focusing on European society because that is where parkour developed, not because that's the only place that had a movement culture. Mm -hmm. um, for anyone who's listening, obviously, there's a huge movement culture happening at the same time in India. Um, other types of movement cultures happening in, in Japan and Korea and China, but for the sake of this podcast in mm -hmm. parkour, what we're focusing on is that direct kind of lineage. Mm -hmm. So we've got Francois Rabelais in France, and he's now reintegrating this into that culture, bringing them out of that movement, dark ages mm -hmm. to re-engage with the body as a thing that is fundamental to being human and not as something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Wow. Would you say, so like I, the way I kind of heard that in my head was sort of like, you know, we had these mind, body, spirit pillars, these three pillars that are sort of uh, an initial diver or categorization of what we could focus on. And so we focused heavily for a while on the body. It seemed like, you know, the, these gymnastics and militarization of some of these um, movements and moves that were coming out of the Olympic Games and other training programs, we had we'd sort of at some point, I don't know if there's any reason that you can point to of why we felt we maybe had exhausted that or we wanted to dive into spirituality, but there was this huge expansion initially, and then there was a huge contraction on the the body and movement, and 
Instead, spirituality expanded, oddly enough, in something called the Dark Ages. And then, uh, and then, um, again, there's like a, it's, it's a, you know, I don't know if it's that third tier that's opening up in the 1500s, you know, the, the, the mind, is that being addressed in, in your head or is it both the body and the mind or is there just a balance? Um, and you know, I think it's awesome to think about that sort of baton being passed, you know, through the circus culture, you know, somehow we have to keep that thread alive. And, um, it's interesting to me that these different sectors of, humans carry at certain times that spirit that lineage yeah um even if it sort of changes hands and changes houses like you know a crown changes um families in, in sure. different in a you know game of thrones or something or in european history yeah, for or hundreds in actual of years. history yeah. <laughs> in this exact history. time period we're talking about yeah. in fact mm-hmm. um i think that the other interesting thing that you kind of touch on about the circus heritage is um, the main difference there is that movement was kind of relegated to a realm of performance. Mm. It was not seen as something that everybody could engage with. And I think for parkour practitioners, that would probably be very familiar. <laughs> you know, circus folks back then, I imagine, would be able to relate pretty well to us hearing do a backflip or hardcore parkour every time we try to do anything that engages with our environment. So they had movement as, I mean, and obviously they were training incredibly hard and what they were doing was being performed for the highest level of aristocracy at the time. Mm. But their movement practice was fundamentally like spectacle. It wasn't something that, connected those three pillars you were talking about and i think as for the historical funnel that happened it was literally the development of christianity Hmm. so particularly in the early history of the catholic church when you have a a messianic figure not to get too (laughs) deep into the history of this but when you have a a messianic figure who is saying that uh, you know look within the body being wealthy being strong these aren't the ways to get to heaven be meek be humble mm. love the lord with all your heart you know it's better to poke out your own eye than to look at a woman uh, you know have mm-hmm. lust for somebody or see somebody with that look in your eye when you have all of these kind of uh anti-body sentiments floating around mm-hmm. the move toward asceticism and restriction of bodily engagement with the world I think is a pretty natural move. And also there are other, other factors. I mean, Europe in general was not as um, sociopolitically evolved. You Mm -hmm. could say as ancient Greece or ancient Rome were, it was a little bit more barbaric in a lot of ways. Uh, And not to mention the middle East, which was really where culture in all of its essence was preserved from through the dark ages and unto the Renaissance. And that expansion happens precisely because the Renaissance folks are moving away from their, they're starting to create what we now think of as humanism, Mm. where you're celebrating humanity as its own thing, not as not humanity exclusively in the context of how we relate to God or Mm -hmm. gods. Um, And so that expansion happened precisely because people are, are exploring the sciences again and, 
are exploring art and music and you see the same thing in art. Art became exclusively religious in Europe for almost a thousand years. And then suddenly you start to see art that is going back to Greek mythology happening in the Renaissance where now you have paintings of the Medusa and these other things that re the rediscovery during the Renaissance of the Greco Roman tradition of humanism was incredibly hmm. important. That was the the foundation that our Western modern societies are built on. Um, and yeah, the, the growth of movement again as a practice is intricately linked to that historical moment for sure. Cool. Yeah. So where do we go? Where does it go next? Um, so, from, in, in, in terms of how it relates to Georges Hébert. Yeah. So from Rabelais, there's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a die off, but there's a bit of a plateau. Movement's cool. People are okay engaging with their bodies again, but not a ton is going on in terms of development until the 1780s or 90s. Um, the next kind of big landmark moment is the late 1790s. We flash forward to kind of Germany, Prussia, and a man, excuse me, a man named Johann Gutzmuth publishes a book called Gymnastics for Youth. And he's starting to explore and revitalize this interest in ancient Greek gymnastics and he separates gymnastics movement into two categories, natural and artificial gymnastics. And the natural just kind of emphasizes physical health, being outside, engaging with nature. The artificial emphasizes more uh, aesthetics and that's engaging with the artificial man-made obstacles like the pommel horse. Um, some of the other ones that were developed around this time a little bit later would be um, uh, I don't want to say uneven bars, but um, I think the parallel bars rings were a thing at this time. Mm. So the artificial gymnastics focused a little bit less on the health and development of the individual and a little bit more on the development of the method mm -hmm. and engagement with what had been created to promote that method. So Gutsmuth was really the first one to popularize this again in probably almost 2000 years, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. And then he had a kind of fellow countryman, uh, Friedrich Jan, who in the early 1800s, again, this is Germany, uh, right after Napoleon had invaded and was lording it over the Germans. Friedrich Jan um, continues Goodsmith's work. He invents a couple more and kind of refines a couple more apparatus for gymnastics practice. And he opens a space called the Turnplatz and just kind of formalizes what gymnastics training can look like. Interestingly enough, um, well, Jan is kind of a an interesting character. He was this ardent nationalist because he was coming from this time where Napoleon had just invaded and was trying to crush any sense of German identity. And so Jan saw gymnastics as a way to train passionate, active young men to become essentially German nationalists mm -hmm. who, you know, wanted to be strong for the motherland. And um, the darker side of that is that his uh, methodology was kind of adopted by the Nazis a hundred years later. Not so hot, <laughs> yeah. obviously, but you can see where the ties of training young boys to be proto-nationalists and mm -hmm. essentially fascists. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that is not the greatest heritage from Jan's perspective. Yeah. But, um, it is interesting that he, maybe in a, a different 
way and obviously like he wasn't a nazi he was yeah, I mean, he years died a long time this. before yeah. yeah but he had no he, control over that he but. he took movement and kind of reapplied it to a broader context mm. and i think that's something that jan did that goodsmith didn't do that mm. robley didn't really do it was now let's use movement as a tool for social change for social education in this in this context and, and weaving almost back all the way back into you know the plato exactly. and socrates era where it's like all right this has to introduce a virtue now again, or, yep. or it has to, in, we're introducing, reintroducing movement into a context where it matters as a piece of your entire human development. life and development. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jan really is the first kind of historical character we see that does that. Mm-hmm. And that's a big move. And in terms of a bear's heritage, the final one that we're going to touch on, um, and actually, well, we should maybe on a quick aside, I won't go too much into detail. There were a few educators that were kind of concurrent mm. with Jan and Goodsmith who were changing the way that children were educated in general. So for the longest time, right, kids were looked at as these little adults and you just treated them like little adults mm-hmm. and you educated them the same way that you would you yourself. You just sat down and put them in front of a book or had them memorize things by rote and Right around this time, there were a couple um, educators, Pestalozzi being one of them, uh, I believe in Switzerland, who were starting to look at children from a more modern developmental perspective. And they were looking at how to incorporate music and dance and art and movement into a broader, more what we would now call liberal education so that they were learning in a well-rounded way. Uh, and that ties really directly also into that uh, humanist thread straight from the Renaissance. Mm. So that is kind of happening concurrently. Jan, I'm sure, was aware of some of those developments, picked up on them, used gymnastics in his own way to, to touch on that. And then the last piece of the puzzle that we're going to go into is a man named Francisco Amaro. And he was a Spaniard who moved to France and ended up working with the French military he developed a method based on a lot of the same concepts that Rabelais had defined in the 1500s. And he actually wrote a book that um, had a natural method in its title. Mm-hmm. He worked with the French military, and this is only about 80 years before Georges Hubert assumed essentially the same uh, title that Amaro held in the 1830s. So Hubert was eminently aware of Amaro's work. He... Uh, what Amaro had done at that time was basically change military drill, move it away from the regimented kind of parade style, more flashy, I guess, or showy form of drill where the focus was just on coordinating people. It wasn't necessarily on let's make these people stronger or more capable as soldiers. It was just let's get them all to move really well together and listen to directions really well, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense for the w- like type of warfare at the time. Uh, he moved away from that a little bit and started experimenting with training them as athletes. He incorporated those 10 movement categories and didn't really... The main difference between Amaro and, and what we'll find out with a bear is Amaro stopped at the movement side. He didn't do what Jan had done where... Mm-hmm he started to kind of look at movement as something more. He was just kind of, I'm a coach. I am going to make these soldiers better at performing on the battlefield. And 
that was where the interest stopped. Mm. So Amaro started to kind of redefine how the French military was training its soldiers at the time. He broadened their movement capabilities, but he didn't go any farther than that. Mm. And that kind of sets the stage again. That was in the 1830s. That sets the stage for a young Georges Hubert who's growing up in that post Amaro French military environment Mm -hmm. to come on as a late teen, early 20 somethings and really do something uh, really vital for not just the military, not just the people of France, but I think for how the world saw movement as a part of human growth and development. Oh yeah, baby. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and that we'll get into in the next episode, it sounds like. Yeah. And so, I, I know that we touched a little bit on kind of why this matters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before we, cause we're now going to open it up a little bit for some contextualization of all of that, I think. Right. Yeah. And you know, I just think it's interesting pointing out because without giving too much away for the next episode, it's, you know, we have these figures that sort of consolidate and re- the energy that, you know, is being recycled here in my eyes is sort of recycled like we see it you know in plato's era being very broad and and it means a lot it has it it holds a huge wedge in what it means to be human and then it kind of gets diluted then we have um, rabelais that brings it back into um the modern or contemporary lexicon at least like bringing taking more market share you could say or just (laughs) like it's like making it relevant again because it kind of got squashed and put on the shelf or at least like very you know set aside and irrelevant made irrelevant so it's gaining relevancy again but then now it has to be updated and so then we have someone like um i forget everyone's name because i'm not so yeah jan friedrich Jan. jan jan so making it you know not just relevant, but recontextualizing it, drawing it back into like, why is it relevant? Instead of just making it like um, expanded into different movement categories, which again is important. But um, that that whole cycle is sort of happening in, in my understanding of it, where they go microscopic on it and then someone draws it back to the macro. Yeah. And so it goes like, again, there's different... It's like there's explorers and there's integrators. Yeah. Like the explorer has to go deep to get deeper than what's been done before. Mm -hmm. And they have to go all the way down that rabbit hole. And then you have these integrators who are able to dive in and then take a step back and contextualize it. Mm. And I do think that's something that we see happen time and time again. Yeah. Um, And I think that's just kind of how human progress works in general. Right. hundred percent. If you look at Einstein's relativity, you know, he was an explorer And he was unique in a sense because he was an explorer. He was fascinated with things like light and came up with these abstract ideas. What happens if I am moving at the speed of light Mm -hmm. and I shine a flashlight? And then all of a sudden he is able to take a step back and come to these insane conclusions about the nature of reality. Mm. And in the context of movement, I think that you see that. And this actually ties really, really nicely into what we wanted to talk about, which is that that common ancestor mm. between parkour and gymnastics. So if any of our listeners aren't familiar with the the current fig situation, um, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. It, as of where it is right now, over the past five to six years, uh, the gymnastics federation fig essentially wanted to work within parkour, but not necessarily with the support of the parkour community to make parkour a subdiscipline of gymnastics, partially due to COVID partially due to, some blowback within the parkour community. 
it was not included in the Tokyo Olympics or the Paris Olympics, but it does seem like gymnastics is continuing to pursue parkour as a subdiscipline and may look to get it added in 2028. They are still hosting events under the banner of FIG. It's not like they've stopped. Mm-hmm. And I don't imagine they'd be putting money into it if they didn't want parkour to be part of gymnastics. So that raises a very interesting question, which a lot of people in the parkour community have already addressed. And that is, what is the relationship between parkour and gymnastics? Mm-hmm. Looking at this history, you can see how a gymnastics federation could argue that parkour is a subdiscipline of gymnastics. But I think in the context of what gymnastics meant when they shared that common ethos and what gymnastics is now, we're talking about gymnastics now as pigeonholing itself incredibly down that explorer (laughs) route of we're only doing these six things. (laughs) I'm only going to do this one, you know, I'm coming up with one routine I'm going to do it for the next eight years until it's perfect. (laughs) I'm going to perform it once if I'm lucky. And then I'm done with that sport forever. It's not like you don't see 60 year old gymnasts like still trying to progress. It's not a Mm -hmm. practice that, and it does engage somewhat. There is obviously recreational gymnastics. However, the type of gymnastics that Fig wants to associate with parkour does not engage the human body in a contextual framework, the way that parkour does where parkour's ethos, it is a fundamental part of parkour that it exists, not just as a sport, but as a wider practice to incorporate into your growth and development. Yeah. I love that, man. Yeah. It makes me think of the circus people again, you know, in a way gymnastics has kind of like, tell me if I'm wrong here, or if you see it differently, but it's, I feel like they've put themselves in that circus category. Like, you know, in the dark ages in a way where they're like, oh, it's purely performative. It's really weirdly specific and it's only at this elite level and partially maybe why, you know, a theory you could put out there is, you know, there's a, there's like a sister relationship between all these dichotomies. So there is like this aesthetic version of parkour or mo- movement, you know, and then there's a utilitarian version and they all branch out even more beyond that. So there's utility as a human or utility militarist militaristically and all these things. And everything eventually has to get balanced out because if it gets one sided and two, you know, imbalanced in one direction, there's a call for something to call in to fill in that vacuum. And it feels like parkour has sort of been this answer in many of our lives as young individuals to balance that, not just that, that you, or especially when parkour maybe started was more utilitarian. That's like kind of the answer to like not having movement, have a space in the, in the, the public the, conversation, the public conversation of what it means to be human. Yeah. And just yeah. like, it's been, it's certainly felt like that in my eyes. I've seen it in our culture, you know, very vividly yeah. across lots of, you know, it means a lot to a lot of the practitioners, especially the ones have been practicing for a decade or longer this practice is about developing of themselves. It's not about competition and it's not about showing off. And of course there are already, you know, with the speed of the internet age, things have been recycled and, you know, we've seen offshoots of the complete opposite of that in parkour, you know, within parkour we're getting now, you know, a derivative version of it that is like, all right, here's, here's the super performative version of this, 
broadly more utilitarian or broadly more um broad or just fuck, broadly more, more gen- broad <laughs> broadly more generalized, like, more generalized like yeah and so people have taken it now and yeah you know some people may be like oh they've bastardized it but ultimately it's just they've there's just versions of it in every yeah do you mind if i if i try and away. distill what you're distill saying still because bit? i'm just kind of yeah it's it's such a big concept for me it's i'm kind of rambling around it but it's uh i, I want to hear what your thoughts are i think what we're kind of saying is an important theme here that re- relates directly to parkour from that expansion and contraction. Every discipline or sport has two sides. It has this uh, natural and artificial, like Gutsmuth pointed out. Mm-hmm. You have kind of the, maybe let's say more, uh, we have a sport side and we have a culture side. That mm-hmm. might be a, a decent way to put it. So parkour started almost exclusively on the culture side in the sense that it was a practice that was developed with community culture, personal development in mind as the end goal, the sport side, the end goal is performance. Mm-hmm. And that can be measured in competition. It could be measured in just personal output performance, you know, as a form of personal development. Now you're measuring your, your Kong precision. You're not measuring how much you've grown as a person. So it doesn't necessarily even need to be competitive. It just needs to be more goal oriented, maybe a little bit more quantifiable And what I was trying to say, I guess the difference for me, obviously gymnastics has both of those as well. Mm -hmm. So my wife, Christine did gymnastics for a long time. I did gymnastics until I was 10. It was incredibly important as a, as a thing for me to engage with movement as a kid. I learned a lot from it, but I noticed that the deeper I got into it, the less it became about the culture side and the more it became about the sports side. Mm. And I think that Modern gymnastics, as defined in the competitive sense by FIG, in this particular scenario, uh, almost is exclusively focused on the sport side and the culture side isn't as much a part of the definition. And where I see parkour and gymnastics differentiating, to kind of sum this whole thing up from my perspective, is that that ancient route that we all shared mm. was a combination of both, but you couldn't deny that the culture side was an integral part of the definition of that practice. And I think parkour exists in that same space where mm-hmm. you take away the culture side, you take away the ethos and the philosophy of parkour. And I think a lot of practitioners, majority I would argue, would look at that and say, that's not parkour anymore. Mm-hmm. That is part of the, the definition of the sport is that it has to tie into something bigger than just performance. Not to say that the performance side doesn't exist. Obviously, sport parkour is a thing. It's really cool. <laughs> it pushes the sport in an amazing direction. But even those athletes, I think most of them would acknowledge that the culture side is just as or more important to them than the performance side. Mm-hmm. And my my TLDR rant mm-hmm. being wrapped up, that is where, to me, that difference between gymnastics and parkour lies. And why it's important to know this history so mm. that when you have a, a <laughs> entity like FIG that says, well, look at the history. Parkour is just uh, as much a part of gymnastics as it is its own entity. You'd say, well, maybe in some ways, but spiritually, I mean, yeah, I, it's <laughs> we're like, maybe a more direct descendant. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> it's almost more like, well, you fucked it up, <laughs> FIG. You bastardized it. What they just the, didn't the have the balance. Is. They and didn't so, have the balance on the other side. Yeah. We can say that. Yeah. You could say that. And 
you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with, yeah, the, the, the ancestor, you know, if we can take it back there and, but that's not what you've made it out to be in the yeah. contemporary version of what you have created as an organization is too rigid, too specific and too biased in that sport comp- competitive direction for it to, to really be a proper homage to the spirit that you're talking about. And where like, does we're the actually growth better, yeah. come from that? And I yeah. think that's an, another important thing is that 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 is the way to become a vestigial limb is <laughs> to pigeonhole yourself so far down that mm. path because th- how do you how do you reintegrate out of that mm-hmm. that level of depth and the only way to reintegrate is to go back kind of up your evolutionary branch yeah. to the most common <laughs> recent ancestor and yeah. take your own direction. Yeah. And you know, I think parkour maybe because it's younger in a lot of ways, right? We still have so much room for growth. And that is why, again, having a knowledge of the history is so important because it it allows each practitioner to decide how much they want to be an explorer and how much they want to be that integrator. Where do they want to dig deeper and where do they want to bring new things in? You just had Rafe Kelly on your podcast. I love what he does with nature and with fighting and with play. Mm-hmm. Um, I coach with Movement Creative for a long time. Their emphasis on play and play-based learning is a direction that I'm not really that interested in personally. But I love seeing how they take it back and reintegrate it and how their students carry that forward. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Rafe. You know, it's amazing to see when you can take something this broad and and dig back and not keep going down that path, but say, okay, I've learned all these lessons. I've got some gold. Now let me bring that gold back down to town, (laughs) you know, and spread it around a little bit. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that pretty well wraps it up. I think we can get in now to the next episode and I hope you guys join us. If you have the time to just go ahead and keep listening and binge that or Wait for, Wait for it one. to come out because maybe you're right up on it and it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> Thanks to the OG <laughs> listeners if you're yeah. one of them. <laughs> All right, cheers.